This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the pandemic hit the United States, the Veterans Affairs Department famously switched to mostly virtual visits for primary health care. No surprise there. VA was already deep into a plan to be ready for such a disaster. But telehealth did have some issues, mainly having to do with VA Video Connect, the VA's system for doing video visits. Here with details, the VA's Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections, Dr. Julie Kroviak. Dr. Kroviak, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. So give us the top line findings of what you looked at, because this is such a giant and central issue for VA. It's almost hard to imagine it not in telemedicine mode. Yeah, so you would expect that during a global pandemic or any kind of disaster that VA would have been ready to assist their veterans and continue care through a video platform. And that was what we expected to find. However, when we started digging and looking at what actually happened immediately before the pandemic and immediately when the pandemic hit, we didn't see that they transitioned to a video platform as we would have expected. And while they said their virtual appointments increased dramatically, it was mostly via telephone. Yeah, I think that's the other finding that has been trickling out is that by telephone, I guess it's virtual in that sense, but is the sense that telephone has some shortcomings relative to video? So certainly, you know, we absolutely want veterans to get the care they need. And a lot of those encounters can be managed effectively over the telephone, but you are missing the ability to do a more comprehensive or robust exam over the telephone versus a video application. Yeah, you can't show the doctor something if you had to and so on. I guess for maybe psychological visits, there is a lot to be seen in backgrounds and in facial expressions and mannerisms that could inform someone doing a behavioral health assessment. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, even beyond the mental health exams, you know, a patient could report shortness of breath. But recognizing they have edema or swelling in their legs could be incredibly valuable in gauging how you're going to manage that patient. And what was the primary issue then with respect to video? So we actually looked at it a couple of different ways. We looked at volume in terms of these primary care encounters and how VA adapted immediately when the pandemic hit and the venue. But we also sent out surveys to primary care providers who were engaging in this type of care because we wanted to understand their perception and what barriers they felt existed. And hands down, the hindrance was what? Not what the providers had access to. They had the training. They had the equipment. It was what the veterans had access to. They didn't always have reliable equipment. They didn't always have reliable Internet connection. And they didn't have the tools to troubleshoot when necessary to make these appointments happen. And what about the scheduling issues? Because I think your report found that there were a couple of different systems that had to be invoked to even make an appointment for a video visit. Yeah, so it is a bit trickier than one would think. When we talked to the Office of Connected Care Leadership, they informed us that two systems actually have to cooperate and communicate to get these appointments on the books, which will then generate an email to a veteran with a link in it that he or she can click on to communicate with their provider. So there were flaws in that communication of these two systems, as well as flaws in the links for veterans to log on and get that virtual appointment started. Yeah, that was a question, you know, having had, I guess, as most people have had video visits with their own providers in this era, this pandemic. I found that the platforms are not all that simple. And, you know, those of us that are experienced in this kind of thing have found a little trepidation. So how does VA's platform 
compared to, say, commercially used platforms, which ain't that good. So the VA Video Connect is actually a commercial application. But again, you're talking about a population that is very used to those face-to-face traditional settings. And without enough education and practice and repeated use, this population could be seen as being at a disadvantage for use of this technology. VA Video Connect is more reliable in terms of security over FaceTime and Skype. You know, the complexities we describe in the report, I think, illustrate the challenges that were going to happen. We're speaking with Dr. Julie Kroviak. She's Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Department. And so you had a couple of big recommendations. It looks like VA agreed with them. What were those? So both of the recommendations went to the Undersecretary for Health. And we were looking at a review of what hindered the veterans from the equipment and internet reliability side. And then the second recommendation looks at what was available to train them and to assist them when they needed that support, couldn't connect or couldn't use the application as it was intended. So two recommendations, but both of them geared towards the veteran side. Yeah. And how do you get the right device and internet connections into the hands of veterans that just are in, say, Vision 20 in some of those rural areas or Alaska or whatever the case might be? Yeah. So it is a challenge. It's the beauty of being oversight. We don't make those decisions for VA, but we we do recognize they have had time and they have had money to um, invest in this program and to understand its limitations. And now we're asking them to be much more aggressive in putting it forward. Got it. And were you able to assess the quality of care? Was that part of the scope of this? So we weren't looking at quality of care that occurred in traditional versus virtual platforms. And quite frankly, that situation was not unique to VA. Telehealth expands further through VHA, which we hope this report will help them do. I could foresee projects that look at the quality as well. Do you get the sense that the access to the broadband and to the equipment could go along and improve as the relatively younger veterans take the place of the really older ones that are not so maybe technical savvy and that are coming to the end of their lives? Yeah, that's a great question. We didn't look at what age group was more savvy in their application of this program, though I bet we could all guess. But it is that rural elderly population that I think is the most vulnerable, but would benefit the most from this type of venue. In some ways, the whole populations in those areas that are rural and maybe less wealthy, not just the veterans, but the people that are living among have the similar situation. And think of the impact on the caregivers who might be responsible for the transportation for that three-hour drive to a VA. If we can use this, and I know we can outside of these global disasters, we can really expand the network of care for this population. And just uh, for point of reference, give us some of the statistics in numbers of visits that happened virtually, both in telephone and in the video. Yeah, so just to put your mind around it, our pre-pandemic period was February 7th of 2020 through March 22nd of 2020, and face-to-face appointments were about 1.8 million in primary care. That drops in the first six weeks of the pandemic to about 460,000, not surprising in any way. Telephone visits pre-pandemic are close to a million. And then in that six-week period at the start of the pandemic, they jump up to two and a half million. Again, not surprising, but it's that video application that even before the pandemic was low at 12,000, 
when the pandemic starts, it jumps to 77,000, an increase, but not as robust as you would expect to see and certainly can't compare with those telephone encounters. And by the way, on the telephone encounters, people aren't calling a call center, are they? No, they're speaking directly with the provider. And those are quite effective. Medication refills, a quick review of, hey, how is that medication working for you? Maybe some exchange of more objective information. That may be the best way to handle these appointments, but we're confident it's not the best way for every type of encounter. And just a detail, do we know the extent to which the providers were working virtually versus, I know some of them were in the centers throughout, of course, giving more than just primary care as there were visits increased because of the COVID and so on. But in other words, what number were people calling and did VA office numbers switch over to people's cell phones if they were not in the VA facility? So we didn't look at that, but you are right that there were providers working from home certainly more than before the pandemic, but we didn't examine the issue of how many providers were providing this type of care from their residents and any type of obstacles that occurred because of that. I only ask because in calling many, many, many federal agencies throughout the pandemic, not just VA, but dozens of them, hundreds of them, you never know whether the office phone that's given in the email will switch over to their cell phone and they're actually responsive or just goes to a dead sure. letterbox. Great point. And to be honest, you know, without having looked at those numbers, we do know that providers were still, for the most part, reporting for duty at the centers, really just trying to limit that patient face-to-face interaction for obvious reasons. Got it. Dr. Julie Kroviak is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, 
uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership 
was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick? Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.